Welcome to the PTAB podcast. We are a group of paediatric trainees in the Southwest who every month review a selection of articles that we find useful for our practice. These are taken from the BMJ, Archives of Disease in Childhood Journals. For the full articles, please go to their website, journals.bmj.com. Please note, these are our own opinions and are produced for educational purposes only. They are not intended to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Thanks for listening. Hi Tabby, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining us this week. Dr Tabitha Campbell is a GP trainee with an interest in global health. Thanks for having me. I should probably also introduce Ted, who is Tabby's gorgeous dog, who will intermittently be grunting through this recording. Uh, So if you hear a weird noise in the background, that is Ted. So this all came about because you did a brilliant presentation for us in paediatrics a few weeks ago. And an article came out in the BMJ around about the same time talking about refugees and the role of the paediatrician. So just to start with, what first got you interested in global health and what's your background? Well, it's been quite a gradual thing. And I think from quite early on in my career, I was really interested about the way that vulnerable people accessed healthcare. And I think throughout my career, I've just got more and more involved in it and pretty passionate about it now, really, just having uh, equal access to healthcare for everyone. So, so far, I did my foundation in the Southwest, uh, did three years in the emergency departments and intensive cares, and then eventually decided to go down the GP training route. And whilst doing that, I'm doing my proper medicine diploma this year and some small global health projects on the side. On your journey, you've already done a few different global health projects, haven't you? Yeah, at the moment, the one I'm involved with is developing a teaching programme, a collaboration of two hospitals one in Nigeria and my local hospital in Barnstable, where once every two months we have a session on a particular disease or presentation. And that's Dr. Sadia Kumi, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so she's heading that project. And yeah, she's done a great job. I think it's really gaining momentum now. And we've got a couple of other hospitals in Nigeria to be more involved. That sounds like a brilliant project. And I know Dr. Kumi works really hard at it. So I'm glad that it's gaining momentum. So you gave us a presentation in paediatrics roughly around the time that this article was released online. So it's not yet in an edition of the education practice. It's in the online section of the journal. So it's called 15 minute consultation. What do paediatricians need to know about child refugee and migrant health needs? And it's by Dr. Aoife Ryan and Dr. Alison Kelly. So this paper just talks through things that you need to consider when you meet a refugee, either in clinic or in the emergency department, and what additional aspects you need to consider. So Tabby, um, can you talk us through the definitions that are used for displaced persons? So when a displaced person or child arrives to the UK, they can apply for asylum. So they are a personal child seeking asylum, and that's what they're called, or locally known as asylum seekers, although that term is now falling out of favour. Because so, it's been used in such a degree. Exactly, yeah. because of the connotations yeah. coming from different people. A different definition is a refugee, so that is a personal child who has previously seeked asylum and they've been granted asylum, so they're now a refugee, and they are given slightly different rights to those persons seeking asylum. And then you have an unaccompanied asylum-seeking child. So there's a child under the age of 18 
um, that arrives to the UK without a parent or guardian. Now, these children have completely different rights to children within families. They are automatically given the same rights as any looked after child in the UK. Okay. So they have to be placed with a foster family or a guardian. And they also have to have a, a health assessment within a certain amount of time. Okay, so there's much more of a structure as, to, to care for these yeah, children. As long as they can prove what age they are. Yeah. And we'll come back to that, I think, yeah. a little bit later. Um, and then the final term that's also used is an undocumented migrant, and that refers to um, people who don't have any form of immigration status or any leave to remain. So leave to remain is a term that is used for someone who has refugee status and they get this for about five years, so after which point they have to reapply again. So this an undocumented migrant doesn't have any papers at all. Maybe their, their asylum status was rejected mm. or um, maybe they haven't, haven't resorted to seeking asylum. They've come to the UK for a quote-unquote better life. They're not here for safety reasons, essentially. Yeah, so they're the different definitions that we can use. And the reason the definitions exist is because of the different rights that people have when they have these different yeah. labels, essentially. And um, it's quite different in terms of what financial support the families receive or whether or not they're allowed to work. Absolutely, yeah. So a um, person seeking asylum cannot work till their refugee status is granted. And they do receive some support from the government, but it's not very much at all. So a person family seeking asylum is given £37.75 Wow! Uh, for a week. So that works out to about £5.39 a day per family. Um, wow. Or a slightly different quote is £6.43 was the bigger quote I got okay. per day. Now, if you have a child under the age of four, you get slightly more, or if you're pregnant. So if you're pregnant, I think you get £3 more. You're eligible for Healthy Start as well. You are. So that's yeah. a slight top up. Yeah, as long as you can then navigate the different systems to apply yeah, for Healthy Start. Yeah, I was going to come back to that a bit can, later. Yeah, yeah, again, come back to it. I think that it's the theme throughout this will be access and navigating the UK health system, which is just the major problem, really. But also, living on that amount of money is just not, not easy, not sustainable especially not for a healthy lifestyle. No, yeah. So it falls to charities to make up the difference. And that's only if the families are able to access yeah. or, or aware yeah. of the charities out there to provide additional support. Exactly. And locally, I don't know how many refugees we have in Devon, but I do know that there are quite a few refugee hotels now. So there are two in Exeter. There's mm -hmm. one in Exmouth and also one in Torquay, Paynton, and closer to us in Barnstable, there's one in Ilfracombe. Mm -hmm. And that's also what spurred this recent discussion. Yes. We've had some, mm -hmm. some interactions with some of the children from that hotel. So just coming back to age a moment, um, because that's quite important, particularly as paediatricians, isn't it, when taking into consideration the rights of the displaced child? Yes, absolutely, because if you are an unaccompanied child arriving to the UK, you obviously get placed um, as a looked-after child to foster parents, guardians, and you also have to have a um, health assessment within a certain amount of time, so you get quite a lot of good rights from that. However, you do have to prove in some cases that you are of that age you can probably hear ted scrabbling in the background i apologize about that so if you have a birth certificate or a passport then that's ideal but a lot of children entering the country are unaccompanied will not have that will not have that documentation or evidence and therefore it comes down to the immigration team where they enter to decide whether essentially they believe them or not 
There has been a lot of discussion about trying to estimate the age, particularly using things like x-rays yeah, to try and They've tried to get us involved as paediatricians, haven't they? And the RCPCH has a really clear stance on this, that we will not age assess a displaced child and we are to take their word of how old they are, aren't they? Because there's very little evidence base, isn't there, for the x-rays. Absolutely, and difficulties with consent, giving them unnecessary radiation for no medical benefit. There's a whole host of reasons why we shouldn't and the fact that it's pretty inaccurate. So... Going back to your case presentation, so that was prompted by a child that showed up in A&E in Barnstable, wasn't it? Yes, so we had a young boy who attended with his mother to A&E and they were seen by the paediatric team that day. He had a complex medical history. Um, His mum did have some letters which were actually vastly helpful but her um, and the boy only spoke Farsi, so very, very limited English. Um, and he essentially presented because they'd run out of medical equipment, so there was no, no acute problem. But they had just arrived to the UK within the last four days, and they, they just needed to restock up. So this took a really long amount of time because there was just a whole host of barriers that we encountered, including trying to get the language line working and take as much of a history as possible and get them plugged into all the right clinics, making sure they knew about them follow-up and they could get to and from them. And the first problem, really, was that they didn't even have an NHS number because they hadn't registered with the GP yet. And you said he was with you for about four hours. He was with us for uh, quite a while. And it was for something that if a resident of the UK came in, it probably would have taken us about 10, 20 minutes. And talk through a little bit more about the GP barriers, because that's quite a large obstacle, isn't it? Absolutely. One of the common problems is that they are housed in hotels, They often move around and, again, don't have a permanent address and therefore find it very difficult to register at the GPs. GP surgeries are meant to register you, even if you do not have an address, but some are still being quite obstructive for that. And and that's just education, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. There's also this belief of registering a GP will cost money and sort of similar to this, they don't feel like they're eligible. So any person arriving that's applied for refugee status are entitled to free NHS care. It's only the people that have been either denied or have absolutely no documentation or papers to be in the UK that have to pay for any NHS service. And that ties in a little bit with the other barrier that there's the impression that they may be found through their GP service by... Yes, and this fear is pretty well-founded, as it has happened in the past where the immigration system has identified people via GPs to be able to deport them. So it is a real fear. Uh, So you mentioned transport as a barrier. Yeah, transportation in this case was a real issue. So they got a a bus in, but by the time they left there, it was very late, the buses had stopped, so they needed a taxi to go home. Um, However, the local taxis wouldn't accept them without payment, even though they should qualify for a free taxi service. But because they are unaware that they should give this service for free and they're worried or they're worried that they won't get the money for it, which is fair enough if you're a taxi company, you need to be paid. But... The lack of awareness about it just means that people don't want to do it. So if we were presented with another refugee child, what kind of things should we be considering aside from our usual history and examination? So this may be one of our first or only opportunities in a very long time to take 
uh, more opportunistic history from this child and having a good and positive experience that first time positively impacts health in the long run. So when we think about taking a history from a displaced child, obviously dealing with whatever problem they've come in with first, but then if time allows, just taking a few extra questions, doing a proper head-to-toe examination can really change outcomes for those children. And so they talk about adopting a trauma-informed approach to history taking. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so what it basically means is that um, we are able to understand the trauma that the child has experienced and what impact that may have had on their development without adding to the trauma, so without repeatedly asking them about things that may or may not have happened. Which we're really bad at in hospital. Yeah, so it's just about getting the information you can, not probing too much if they are getting distressed and if they've already been asked once not Mm. asking again but that involves things like good documentation and then documentation sharing as well with consent I think that is a really key point to take away and then you talked about the impact of their experiences and when you did the presentation you broke it down into time periods yeah I remember just looking into history taking because I thought with our case I think we could have done a lot more opportunistic history taking so I started looking into it and I found a really nice way of breaking it down a history and it just made sense to me so thinking about pre-flight yeah flight and post-flight and in each of those time sections thinking about the three d's development disease exposure and damage risk so obviously pre-flight is their host country, so finding out were they developing well, did they have ac- access to school and education, did they have ex- access to vaccinations, did they have lack of access to food, and then disease exposure, that's just looking up on WHO website what diseases does that country have and mm. what risk do they have. And then damage risks, it means damage to that child and what may they have been exposed to. If it's a war-torn country, will they have been exposed to torture or other really horrible things? Thinking about things like um, FGM, female genital mutilation, is it high risk in that country and Mm. being aware of that? And then the flight, how have they travelled to the country? Again, development-wise, they probably wouldn't have had access to education school. Potentially, they might have spent some time in refugee camps, which may have given them some opportunity for social engagement and development. But also the refugee camps can be quite violent areas, um, so they could have been exposed to even more trauma. Absolutely, so that's thinking about that third D, the damage risk indeed, and things like disease exposure with refugee camps or travelling in quite cramped conditions, diseases spread like wildfire. And then I think what we think less about is when they arrive to the UK, we sort of think, oh, that's fine, they're safe now, but that's unfortunately not really the case. So thinking about the child's development, are they enrolled in school? Mm. Again, thinking about vaccines, they need to be plugged in into their vaccine schedule. Disease exposure, so in hotels, again, things yes, spread. We've had outbreaks, We've had we? TB, mm. yes. Yeah. And there is significant risk, and scabies as well is pretty common. Yeah in these sorts of conditions and sadly damage risk racism xenophobia um, the impacts of that on their ongoing development are huge aren't they because they're more likely to stay inside not access play groups and then the vitamin d impact on that as well isn't it yeah yeah so lots and lots of micro deficiencies 
but it's just a way to sort of break down different areas of their experience and see what impact that might have on their health and what we can do about it really yeah and then if we think about the physical assessments so you talked about malnutrition, mm-hmm. I imagine most clinicians in the UK haven't really had to assess malnutrition before. So, I mean, we're used to doing height and weight, but the mid-upper arm circumference is not a common uh, measurement that we mm-hmm. have to take, but that's really the main way to assess and then to use the, the WHO graphs. And in terms of the malnutrition, we've talked about what children are eligible for in Healthy Start. So again, it's just pointing people in the direction of things like the Healthy Start website. But that's such a good example of a thing with multiple barriers to (laughs) to accessing it. Because again, it's knowing the language, knowing the websites, having access to data. um, Because we assume that everybody's got access to the internet, but they don't. And then I tried to actually go through the website the other day to see how easy it was to fill in uh, and then hit a hard brick wall because I'm not eligible. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> you need to have a national insurance number, uh, which again, they won't have as asylum seekers, only as refugees. Yeah. So they are still eligible as asylum seekers, but they've got to send an email. And so you had to have a pretty good grasp of English language mm. to read all the way through that website and discover that that's how you're eligible. Mm. So I think as clinicians, we need to know the process so that we can help them because unfortunately social services are swamped. So they're Mm. not always going to be able to give as much care. So it's that opportunistic social prescribing, isn't it? Yeah. And I think along that kind of line of thought is thinking about the wider determinants of health as Mm. well when you're seeing that child, thinking about... I've already hammered home about this, but education school, really important. That's where they'll be seen every day. That's where they'll get their free lunches. That's where they'll make friends and develop. And the teachers will have a really good grasp of how they are doing as well. So I think that schools have a really important role to play in this, Mm -hmm. making sure that they are going to school is a simple 10-second question. So whilst doing the doctor-toe examination, looking for things like any problems with their teeth, yeah, uh, mouth care, things to look out for, for malnutrition and things, as well as more obvious stuff like any exposure to TB, coughs, colds, you know, that kind of thing. But if you have the capacity and time, taking a simple set of blood tests would be very, very helpful because quite a lot of displaced children will have these micro deficiencies, vitamin deficiencies that will be making them feel a bit rotten. Yeah. Um, And you can get a certain idea of the deficiencies when you're looking at things like their nails and their teeth and and their hair and their skin, Mm. the rashes, but the, the blood tests will be a bit more accurate. And so the common ones that they talk about in the paper are things like vitamin A. And I've seen quite a bit of vitamin A deficiency in other countries, and it can be absolutely awful, leading to devastating blindness. But when it's mild to start with, you might not have many symptoms or certainly with a a pre-verbal child, they're not going to communicate if their vision is Mm. not great at night, (laughs) for example. And then the other one is vitamin D that we talked about. And that is very common in England. So I think as clinicians, we're quite well aware of that one. Mm -hmm. But so another deficiency that I wouldn't have thought of was iodine. And actually that can have really important long-term impacts on their neurodevelopment and their growth and general health through hypothyroidism, essentially. 
So we have to think about that in Mm. order to test for it. So just doing your standard thyroid function tests and then if those levels are slightly deranged, then you can also measure urinary iodine, although that's more about the recent iodine intake. And you can also do an ultrasound of the thyroid to detect a goiter. But again, if you're unaware of it, you won't Mm. do the tests. And then iron is the other one, which again, we're quite... Iron deficiency anemia, I think we're all quite familiar with, but... But you were mentioning that they're also more at risk of lead toxicity. Lead toxicity, yes. If you're malnourished, you just have an increased absorption of lead and that can be found in a multitude of different ways of getting into your body. But it's not usually something we have to deal with. <laughs> no, not at all. But And, and again, it can be low-lying illness rather than anything really Yeah, it can really be really acute. non-specific or it can be sort of acute poisoning, which may be a bit easier to pick up with. But things like just neurodevelopmental problems can yeah. present with... Oh, um, I'm pretty sure anemia as well. Yeah. But we'd have to think about it yeah. in order to test for just it. a slightly different thing to yeah. consider. And then I suppose we've got to think about the communicable... Communic- communicable diseases as well so thinking about the country that they've come from are there high levels of things like hiv for example Mm -hmm. Uh, and just asking those questions of the parents just trying to make it as normal a question as possible Mm. um that as delicately as possible as well um but they will be they'll be pretty you know they'll be pretty aware of these risks because coming from countries high with tb and hiv they will be aware that that that's high and they will have family members that have had various things so they should be on top of that and there's it's just really easy to find out what their prevalence is by the going on the who website find out what country they're from and then you can get instant rates of certain diseases and there's really uh, good guidelines about when to test for tb or not but also thinking about when if they've spent significant amount of time in refugee camps they're obviously at much higher risk for pretty much anything so having a really low threshold for taking these tests absolutely because again they're in small confines here in the uk as well anything that they have can be passed on and vice versa and just to talk about immunizations briefly so what are the recommendations for immunizations in this group of children The recommendations are that if there's any evidence of any vaccinations or immunisations, whether this is on paper or accurate history from the parents or guardian of the child, then you can take that as as word and you can pick up where they've left off or if they've had a full schedule completed, you don't have to do anything. However, if there's no accurate evidence, you give them the whole immunisation schedule and you can try and do an accelerated one if they need really quick coverage. And then the paper also talks about things like oral health, vision and hearing. And it's just about remembering to do a gross assessment where you can, but otherwise plugging these children in. So they may never have had an optician's assessment. Um, They may not have seen a dentist in years. And these children are more likely to have hearing impairment because there may have been a torture infection during pregnancy or they may have come from a country with poor perinatal care, so they could have higher rates of asphyxia, hyperbilirubinemia, conicterus, much more common in some countries. And they also may have had recurrent undertreated otitis media. Um, So really avoidable problems, but that would have impacted their hearing. So just remembering to refer them into audiology if you've got any doubt, because getting that early assessment can really help their development in the long run. And I think also just thinking about different cultural beliefs about different things as well surrounding this, and this will 
come up in a bit as well, but um, they may not find it culturally acceptable to be deaf or have visual problems, so they may not have mentioned it to anyone in the past, so just asking the questions. So the next section of the paper is sexual and reproductive health, which is a huge topic in its own right, Mm -hmm. so we are going to talk about it a little bit, but there's far more to be read about it. So the first thing that we need to think about is what they've been exposed to. Yeah, particularly where pre-flight country has got high rates of FGM, and again, that could be found on the WHO website. It's a very, very sensitive subject. It's obviously illegal here in the UK, but I think knowing about the different processes out there. And the RCPCH has a really good FGM page just talking through this in a lot more detail because it's really complicated uh, and the safeguarding uh, things involved. So just thinking if they are at high risk, things like, do they have any trouble with going for a wee? Are they at risk of being pregnant? Do you need to do a pregnancy test? Because obviously that has massive implications. They are at risk travelling from their country to the UK of horrible things like rape happening and what implications does that pose, basically? Yeah, Yeah, there can be a lot of PTSD um, in these. Yeah, we've not even touched on the mental health yet, which no. is, again, an even bigger topic. Yeah, so I um, think that's a good place to move on to. We know that mental health support services in this country for children mm. um, are really struggling at the moment. So what can we do? So, obviously, there is a massive problem with mental health for these children that are coming to the UK. And the recommendations are to plug them into our normal services like CAMS and point them to the GP for ongoing help. It is interesting to point out that we do have a lot of online services for mental health in the UK, especially for children. However, as far as I'm aware, they are only in English. Again, those language barriers hitting once more. But they are there. There are some charities in the UK which... Uh, have identified this as a need um, like the Refugee Council as an example that you can signpost towards and do have some really useful information in lots of different languages so helpful to them. We can post that link in the description for people to access. Mm. I think that it is such a big thing and you can imagine why with PTSD but that I remember reading somewhere that there's a whole group of children who essentially in in a stupor from when they arrived the safe, quote, country, that the process of applying for asylum is so stressful that they're essentially in a a catatonic state and they're fed by NGs and things. And it's crazy. Like, that's that's the amount of trauma that they've had sends them into that kind of state. There isn't a legal way of actually getting to the UK. So that's why you end up going on these... these unsafe journeys unsafe where they risk boats their lives. And yeah. for an extortionate amount of money, yeah. it's, it's unsurprising that they have yeah. some mental health problems. Yeah. And again, thinking back to sort of cultural beliefs and mental health problems, a lot of African countries, it's to be... not within their culture to have any problems with mental health and it's not talked about, yeah. it's not dealt with. So... And actually that ties into what the papers talk about in terms of things like somatisation. So if you've got a child who's presenting with a problem and you cannot find a clear organic cause, just considering actually is this their trauma coming out? Mm. Um, And similarly, things like attention deficit disorder or or symptoms of, uh, we know that ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, can cause very similar presentations. So Mm. just thinking back when you've got that child in front of you who, who has 
these features of attention deficit, just exploring their past a little bit more and plugging them into appropriate services as needed. So that's a lot of different things to think about when you're seeing seeing these young people. Uh, I personally will not remember <laughs> most of these. So I think the most important thing to remember is that there's a really good RCPCH page on the refugee. Uh, and Tabby, you actually created a smart tool for us to use in Barnstable. So we've, then people just have to remember that this exists and then open up and work through it. And you, you know, we won't cover everything. As you say, there's going to be limited time. Yes. But just trying to think about that. About what you can do within the time constraints yeah. and as I said before you're not going to come across this that often so it's not about keeping everything in your head ready to go but having some prompts and using the time you have to give them a positive experience really just being opportunistic with what you can and can't solve and plug them into all different services really making sure they're going to school really making sure they know that they can access GP practices and they should access GP services plugging them into things like CAMS and mental health services and just being nice to them yeah (laughs) you know developing trust they need to have trust in our uh, health service to be able to use them and knowing that they can use them with language line and things and they they don't have to suffer any unnecessary barriers there are ways to get around them and we have a long way to go within the healthcare service to make things accessible but at the moment we can just be nice people and (laughs) they'll be able to feel like they can come back and they won't feel targeted or uh, discriminated against for being here. Heavy topic. Thanks, Mm. Tabby, for going through that in so much detail. And we'll put the links at the bottom of the page, as we always do. And then just to end on a lighter note, Tabby, we like to ask people what their favourite book is or film is. And also podcast, um, because we are all podcast listeners by default. <laughs> so I do read quite a lot of books. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to say I had a standout favourite, but a recent book I've read is a book called Where the Crawdads Sing, where it's written by Delia Owens. It's basically about following this child who grows up in the marshes somewhere in America. And then you also follow a storyline of a, a boy and they sort of meet and it's it's just it's really good it's really okay. well written and there's actually recently been a film made about it which i refuse to see <laughs> because i'm too scared that it's not gonna do and the book it's gonna justice. undo your yeah. beautiful images in your head yeah yes. i've always got yeah. that fear. um but i've been told it's pretty good so i might give it a watch at some point in terms of podcasts um i listen to regularly the off-menu podcast which is Ed Gamble and James Acaster. And the premise is famous people come to their restaurant, their dream restaurant, and then have their dream starter main course and things. Uh, It's just really funny. It's very relaxed. It's great for really long journeys. Well, thank you, Tabby, again for joining us. And as usual, if anybody has any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. And hopefully we'll uh, talk again soon. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. That's all for this episode. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to get in touch via our email address, podcast at pedshub.co.uk or via the Pedshub website. Equally, if you'd like to get involved, we always welcome your voices, so please do get in touch. Thanks Thanks for listening. listening!